So I know I lost my credibility with the whole Arizona thing, having a Z in it and thinking that Albuquerque was a state. But put that out of your mind so we can have a good conversation today about Proverbs. Proverbs is an incredible book. I'm so thrilled to hear that you guys have been going through it for so long. But it's also a useful book, which hopefully you've been learning. And what we're going to talk about these next couple times we meet is how we can use Proverbs as a guide for making big decisions in our lives. We make little decisions in our lives, like maybe not hundreds, but probably dozens every day. And they start with these magic words of should I or what should I do? And we probably answer most of them without even thinking about it. You know, should I brush my teeth before church? Yes. Should I put my shoes on before I come to church? Also, yes. I've eyeballed. I think you all said yes to number two. I'm praying you said yes to number one. I know things are a rush in the morning, but it's important. But that's a pretty low stakes question, right? And you don't even really think about it. Uh, other questions, you got to think a little bit more. Should I ask for Italian food or Mexican food for dinner? Okay, you got to think about that one a little bit, but hopefully you come to the conclusion Mexican is the correct answer. But still a pretty straightforward, low consequence question, right? Um, and most of the time we go through these should I questions without really thinking about it, and there's not a whole lot at stake. But there are also a lot of what should I do or should I questions where the stakes are quite a bit higher. And you all are getting to a point in your lives where you're going to have these high stakes questions a lot more frequently. Um, should I think about dating this person? Am I getting to an age where I should start thinking about finding a spouse? Should I go to trade school, community college, four-year college, straight to the workforce after high school? Should I try to play college sports? Uh, if you're old enough, should I vote for person A or person B in the next election? Should I consider full-time ministry? Those are a lot bigger questions, right, that take more than a couple seconds to think about. Now, a lot of Christians who maybe their heart's in the right place, maybe they're trying to seem holy, but they approach these should I questions and they at least will say, I really want to know what God's will for me is to do here. But they don't look in here at all. They start uh, talking to the Lord. Lord, please give me a sign. Just tell me what you want me to do. Well, right here it says uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Lord, anything, please just give me some kind of sign of what I should do. While well, in here it says, uh, commit to the Lord whatever, your whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. Lord, I really want to submit to your will. Why have you hidden it from me? Uh, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. They completely set aside this book to try to discover what God's will for them would be. But I have good news for you that finding God's will isn't as mysterious as we sometimes make it out to be. 2 Peter 3.1 says that he has revealed for us in the scriptures everything that we need for life and godliness. And so much of what's in the Proverbs is to help us determine how we understand the parameters of God's will. I put that in quotes for a reason. We'll come back to that later. Um, but the trick is we need to learn how to be instructed by and informed by Proverbs without not necessarily being pointed to a specific question to the specific situation that we're in. Like those big questions I mentioned earlier, a lot of factors go into that, right? And we would love for the answer to be right here on the surface, but that's not always the case. It's, it's easy to answer our big questions from the Bible when we can go straight to a chapter and verse, right? Should I cheat on my algebra final? That's pretty straightforward, knowing God's will for that. Among other things, that would be a violation of the ninth commandment. That's bearing false witness, pretending to have knowledge that you don't have knowledge. Should I forgive this person who has wronged me? I don't know. I don't know what God's will for me for that would be. Obviously, we know what the scripture teaches on that, right? Should I steal? 
No. Should I give generously? Yes. Those are also very high stakes questions, but it's still very easy to know what God's will for us would be in those. Those are little gimme putts for us, right? Well, we know how to find the answer. We don't always do it, right? Confession, we don't always do it. But it's easy to find what God's will is there. Should I love my neighbor? Yes, we know what God's will, what God's word would say about that. Where we struggle is in the gray area. Where we struggle is when we're trying to understand what is God's will for me in my present specific situation when his word doesn't seem to have my exact situation covered in the Bible. So when you're weighing those post-high school questions, should I go to this college? Should I go to that college? Should I skip college? Should I look for a college out of state? And if I asked you, if you were talking to me and I said, well, what do you think God's will is for you for where you go to college? You might respond by saying, is that in here? Like, is that, is that in this book? And that's where it starts to get a little bit tricky. We'd love to just turn to, well, let's go to Second Opinions 10.6. And it tells you, you shall go to the nearest four-year school. Afterwards, you will take a job in Cincinnati, Ohio, where you will find your spouse. Wow, I didn't know that was in here. That'd be really nice if that's what the Bible said for you. But just because it doesn't have that doesn't mean that God has left us high and dry, having no idea what he would have us do and how we should move forward with these big decisions. So then how do we make these big decisions? What do we do when God's word isn't as explicit as we think it should be? Um, But he has it in here and we just have to find it so that we don't get stuck in uh, analysis paralysis. You ever heard of that? What would analysis paralysis, what do I mean by that? Anybody know? Who knows what paralysis means? Not being able to move. So what do you think analysis paralysis would be? You're thinking so much about what to do that you end up doing nothing, right? That happens frequently. That's analysis paralysis. You, you can write that down if you want. I didn't expect that to be a trivia question for today. But, the, but I do have good news for you. To avoid analysis paralysis, that God has kind of given us Proverbs as almost a guidebook for Christian living so that we can learn how to make decisions that are within what we could still call the will of God. And Proverbs can act kind of as these guide rails to keep us from getting off track. The wisdom principles that you'll find here will teach you the safe lane to start to stay on so that when you need to make these should I questions, we can say, what would the wisdom that we can extract from Proverbs have us do when God's word isn't specific to my exact situation, but how can I come to a conclusion that keeps me within the guardrails of what God's will would be? So what I hope to achieve this week and then in two weeks when we meet again is we're going to go over eight questions that we can ask ourselves as we have these big should I questions, these big should I decisions in our lives that are going to, we're going to pull them right out of Proverbs. And this is where the weird title that I have here, I want you to become proverbial pool sharks, which will hopefully make sense in a couple of minutes. So just, you have the, the first four questions or what we'll cover today, you have them on your handout. The first question that we're going to look at is really the overarching concept that we'll be talking about. This is the the question that really informs all other questions. And the question that we want to ask ourselves is what biblical principles should inform my decision? What biblical principles should inform my decision? So what do I mean by that? Well, even when God's word is not explicit, like we said, some of our should I questions that we approach there are still plenty of biblical principles that God gives us in the Proverbs to, to utilize to weigh the decisions we're trying to make. So just a quick example from my own life. My wife's here. One of my kids are here. Uh, I have four kids. We've had more than one conversation about schooling options, right? 
what should we do for our children's education? There's public school, there's homeschool, there's private school, there's co-op. Well, scripture doesn't explicitly say what the exact right thing to do is here. But that doesn't mean I just make up and do whatever I feel like doing, right? I believe that the principles from scripture would place the burden of educating our children on the parents. I think that's clear. But then I think that there is liberty to, you said, contract out certain aspects of that education and training as appropriate. And it takes wisdom gleaned from the scriptures to know of the available options, when are there really only three good options? When is there actually only two good options? And when is there really only one acceptable option? And of those options, they're not all going to be the same for every kid. They're not going to be the same in every city. We live in Morton presently. Uh, three of the kids go to public school in Morton. I'm comfortable with that because I know a lot of the teachers. I know who's on the school board. Our own Diane Crawl is on the school board there. We're comfortable sending them there, uh, and we don't believe to be sinning in doing that, right? If we move to Los Angeles, I think that would restrict my options significantly because I think it would be foolishly negligent, if not sinful, to send kids to a Los Angeles public school knowing what's going to be crammed into their head seven or eight hours a day. But I want to come to those conclusions based on what scripture has to say and the principles we glean there, not on what's most convenient, not on what's cheaper, not on what makes us look good. But I want to decide that based on what God's word has to say about what options are actual options and which ones are off the table, which we'll get to shortly. Something more practical for you, you're getting towards the age where you're thinking, this is where we get a little uncomfortable, and I was hoping to do that to make sure you're paying attention, but you're going to start thinking about maybe looking for a spouse, right? Some of you might even be looking in the room saying, are any of these people potential spousal candidates? Make sure to keep your eyes forward so you don't accidentally make eye contact with somebody and get all red, but you want to know who would God have for me? I want to find the, the right person, right? You're not going to be able to chapter and verse that, right? There's no book of first hesitations that says, avoid Shirley Blake, Baker like the plague. There's no one named Shirley Baker in here, right? Okay, good. You're not going to get that. It's not going to tell you if Shirley Baker's a good candidate for a spouse or not. But scripture will speak and does speak about the type of person that you should be looking for as a spousal candidate. For example, 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or famously, Proverbs 31 says, A wife of noble character, who can find? She's worth far more than rubies. So I can't tell you if you should marry Betsy Wilson or Shirley Baker specifically, but I can tell you that if Shirley Baker isn't a Christian, then you should avoid her like the plague as a spousal candidate until and unless she becomes a believer. Or if Betsy Wilson isn't of noble character, so maybe she's a liar, she's sexually promiscuous, she does all kinds of things that the scripture would forbid, she's now off limits. Scripture won't tell you which person to marry, but it would tell you clearly the type of person that you should marry. That's what we're trying to, to get to. As you graduate from high school, maybe you're joining the workforce. I can't tell you if you should work at company A or company B, but I could tell you what scripture would say as the type of worker you should be. Proverbs 21.5 talks about being a diligent worker. Proverbs 6 tells the lazy person to take a look at the, the ants, which are currently infesting my sunroom at home. 
but take a look at them and see how hard they're working and get on with it, right? God would want you to be a diligent worker that blesses others through your work. So when you're considering a place of employment, let's say you have a job offer from company A and company B, and you want to know what's God's will for you in this decision. Well, my question to you would be, is company A a place where you can bring glory to God and good to your neighbor through your work? What about company B? If the answer is no for one of those, set it off to the side. If the answer is yes to both of them, first thank the Lord for how he's blessed you with these options, and then frankly, pick the one you want, right? Pending the other seven questions that we'll talk about. But scripture gives us the parameters of what is an option and what really isn't an option. So the first actual proverb we'll look at is Proverbs 2.6 that says, For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He gives us these tools. He gives us scripture as a tool so that we can actually make good, wise, godly decisions. That's part of what it's for, apart from showing us the way to salvation. And then, of course, famously, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You've surely heard this one. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. This is where we want to wrestle. We want to wrestle in those paths. We, we want to be able to identify things that are clearly out of bounds when making decisions and out of bounds not based on our own understanding but according to scripture. And then we make the best decision that we can within those lanes of scriptural principles. So I'm going to drop another illustration on you to hopefully make my title make sense. Do we have any pool players in here? Anybody play pool? Awesome. One? Okay, great. I'm pretty sure that the table up there has been missing balls and the cues have had broken tips since like 2017. So I don't know how much you're using that. But hopefully you have some idea of how a game of pool works like a standard game of eight ball. Do I need to explain how eight ball pool works a little bit? Okay, I'll do that. And maybe this illustration will fall completely flat, but I made a bunch of slides for it, so we're doing it, okay? Um, but I want you to, do you know what a pool shark is? Okay, somebody really good at pool and can like beat whoever. I want you to be proverbial pool sharks so that you're such an expert at the principles from Proverbs that you can make these decisions like a pool shark. I'm glad I spent time on that. Playing pool, maybe I'll, I'll get the pool table up here so we can look at it a little bit. When you play pool in eight ball, the object of the game is to hit in all of the balls that are either stripes or solids. You'll be either stripes or solids. We're going to be stripes today. So I'm trying to knock in all the striped balls and then the eight ball before my opponent knocks in all the solid colored balls and the eight ball. We good? Well, in the game of eight ball, there are some, some things that I'm supposed to stay away from. I'm not supposed to hit in the black eight ball until I've knocked in all of my striped balls. I was going to say everybody knows that, but hopefully now everybody knows that. Um, uh, uh, if I'm striped, like we are in this illustration, I also want to make sure I don't knock in any solid balls. That would be helping my opponent win. But for those of you that play eight ball, hopefully you also know that I'm actually not allowed to hit a solid ball with my white cue ball unless it's hit a striped ball before that, right? I can technically hit a solid ball on a rebound. We're going to ignore that because it blows up my metaphor here. But forget about that. If I'm stripes, we're going to say that the, the solid balls are off limits. I don't want to hit the solid balls. Now, to make this thing come full circle here and make some sense, the solid balls we're going to call sins or sinful options, okay? So in this game, your life 
We want to avoid hitting any of the solid balls and only hit the striped balls. Hitting striped balls is totally within the rules and is not sinful, no penalty. So now within this game, if I'm stripes, you see the cue ball there over to the right and you see the striped balls around. Uh, I have multiple options of what shot I wanna take. I can hit that striped ball over there. I can hit this striped 11 ball here, or I can hit the, the 14 ball up there. That's a little trickier, but I can still take that shot. I have the freedom to do it. It's just a little harder. But any of those shots are allowed within the rules of the game, meaning that they would be options that I'm permitted to take within the bounds of scriptural parameters and wisdom, okay? Now, if the solid balls are sins or options which the Bible forbids, right? They're against the rules in the game. I can't hit those. So if you see this striped ball over here, the nine ball, right? That's a ball I'm allowed to hit in. That means it's a biblically valid option for me to take. But in order for me to hit that striped ball, what would I have to do? You can answer with the metaphor or just the literal ball answer. Hit solid balls first. I would have to hit a solid ball first. That's against the rules or in the analogy, that's a sin, right? So while the option of the nine ball, the option in my life of a decision is a good biblical option, I would have to sin to get to it. Therefore, it's actually not an option, okay? But for the other three balls, I have the freedom to hit any three of those. There's no right or wrong there. Those are three valid options. I have the freedom to choose any one of those. So likewise, in your life, there's freedom in questions like, where do you wanna live after you move out of your parents' house? What do I wanna do when I graduate high school. You can work at this company, you can go to this school, you can go to this school over here, you can go into ministry, whatever. You're good to go and you can consider yourself living within God's will as long as you choose one of those options or one of those striped balls. Solids are clear no-nos. So if you're wondering, uh, can I become an assassin after high school? No, right? The job <laughs> itself is sinful, right? So that's not a valid option. But then there are um, other, that's an obvious one, but there are other parameters to consider as well. Um, I would really like this job and it's a really good job, but I would have to fudge some information on my resume to get it. The job is good, it'd be a good thing to do, but you'd have to lie to get the job. So it's off limits. Uh, or if you look at something like um, the 14 ball up there, this is a, within the rules of the game, Within the rules of your life, it's a valid option to go for. But the guys that play pool over here, both of you, you know that that's a more difficult shot, right? When the ball's up against the rail, it's a bit trickier of a shot. You're free to go for it, but just be aware that it's going to be more difficult. So if, if now is not the time in your life to be taking risks or the time in the game to be taking risks, maybe you set that one aside and go for one of the easier shots for now. But there's freedom to make that choice. You're not making a wrong choice by going for the more difficult shot. You're not making a wrong choice by going for the easier shot. That making sense? I can't wait till I come back here next time and we have to call you down because you're all playing pool up there and it's so much fun. But the idea here to, to make, the, make the whole metaphor make some sense is what we're trying to gain from Proverbs is gaining the wisdom and knowing how to answer questions biblically to know which of the options set before me are biblically permissible, which ones are in God's will, setting aside the ones that are not. And then with wisdom and maturity comes to how do I then make the best decision among various good biblical options? 
That's what we're trying to, to do. You're young, it'll take some time, but if you can learn how to identify striped balls, that's what we're going for here. So again, if you're, if you're the kind of person who, who wants to know specifically what God's will is to, to the exact answer, you're probably gonna get frustrated. So let me give you some sub tips uh, under the banner of what biblical principles should inform my decision. So first, um, uh, see that up there, but sometimes when God's word is not as explicit as we would like it to be, we're trying to get the principles, pivot your thinking from thinking of God's will like a dot and think of it more like a circle. Think of it more like a circle. So if we're talking about, you know, trying to find a needle in the haystack would be trying to find God's exact will for you. It'd be better to learn where the needle drawer is that you know you can always find a needle. So back to the pool analogy, you're not gonna find a command that says, shoot for the nine ball and only the nine ball. That's the precise thing I want for you. We want to learn from the Bible to get these principles to learn how to identify which balls are the striped ones. We want to identify striped balls and go from there. So God's will is more like a circle than it is a dot. The number two, while we're trying to answer this question, what does the Bible teach about this or that? You're young, you might have no idea. Right? You're still relatively early in your study and knowledge of the Bible. So maybe modify the question a little bit to say, who can help me better understand what the Bible has to say about this decision I have before me? This is being willing to be a uh, disciple. You shouldn't be afraid, or I would encourage you to not be afraid of finding a mature brother or sister in Christ and saying, hey, I'm wrestling with what I should do here. I'm not sure how I can see it. I'm not sure that I'm thinking about it rightly. Can you help me through scripture determine what passages, what principles can help me make a good decision? Help me make a decision based on God's word that's going to be a blessing to me. It's going to be a blessing to my family. It's going to be a blessing to my community and church, right? Help me understand what I ought to do based on scripture. If you're willing to do that, which is fantastic, make sure that you're, you're not just getting... Uh, Bob's opinion. You want Bob to help you know what God's word would have you do. You want the scriptural perspective. And you students are very, very lucky because you've got a room full of people here that would love nothing more than for you to come to them with these kinds of questions about what you should do and how you should think biblically about the, the decision before you. You have pastors, you have elders, you have group leaders, you have your parents. Don't waste those resources. Don't waste those resources. And then uh, number three, make sure that if you're using scripture to come to your conclusion, that you're not the only person that would ever have come to that same conclusion based on scripture. Uh, sometimes what ends up happening is that we can do some pretty creative things with what the Bible says in order to get it to say what we want it to say. And then we justify all kinds of mess. Uh, frankly, if, if you find anybody that has a new interpretation of scripture that no one else has ever come to, I'd be a little weary about that. But especially when it's you, make sure that you're not guiding scripture to the answer you want, but you are being guided by scripture to know what it says. Um, Proverbs fourteen twelve says that there is a way that seems right to man, but its way, its end is the way to death. We don't want that way. We don't want the way to death. We want to make sure we're getting God's way. So the, the first question we're asking ourselves in this should I, which is the whole overarching thing, is what biblical principles should inform my decision. The second question we'll, we want to wrestle with is, do I have all of the facts? 
seems pretty self-explanatory, um, but if we're honest, we probably trip over this like all the time. Uh, Proverbs 18, 13 says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is to his folly and shame. Proverbs 18, 17, just after that, so, and every parent in here who's been in a room with more than one child can relate to this, but it says, the one who states his case first, his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. For, for those of us with kids in the room, when the youngest sibling comes into the room yelling and pleading her case about what one of their older siblings did, any wise parent will hopefully learn in a short amount of time not to bite on that story because you know the next pitter-patter of feet is going to run in to give the other side of the story with, with their version of the truth. If you respond to the first one, things won't go well. They're both probably made up, if we're being honest. But uh, have I ever overreacted to the first story that I've gotten? Not just with kids, but in, in life? Absolutely I have. Um, especially in the politically heated environment that we have now, if the story coming out uh, affirms what I already wanted to hear, I often prematurely overreact to it because I haven't gotten all of the facts of the situation. Dumb example. Where would you not want to go to find out if a restaurant is any good? That restaurant's website, right? Best pizza in town is plastered on the homepage. And you're like, best pizza in town? I got to get in on this. And you go, and then after eating a piece of cheesy cardboard, you think to yourself, you know what? I was misled, right? I think I should have gotten more data before I believed that right off the bat. Maybe I should have checked Yelp to get some third-party, uh, more objective analysis on the pizza quality. You got to get all the facts first, right? And sometimes we simply don't make a wise choice in our life, much higher stakes than pizza, because we haven't really done our homework. We haven't gotten all of the facts. We've heard the information that confirms what we already want to do, and we go with that. Uh, in business, that's you know not reading the fine print. In spending, that is buying something based on an emotional response rather than getting all of the facts. In relationships with people, we hear one person's side of the story, the first to plead his case, and then we're very angry or frustrated with person C over here who we've not even talked to, who we haven't even heard their side of the story yet. We don't, get, we don't take the time to get all the facts, and it leads to bad choices, regret, and sometimes indigestion in the pizza scenario. So when you're making a decision or when you're counseling others to make a decision, make sure to do these few things. Here's some extra tips. Number one would be to ask a lot of questions. This is simple. Just take the time to actually do the fact finding just by asking questions. And if you're on your own, that means doing research. If it's with people, it's asking a lot of questions. Number two, don't fall prey to uh, wishful thinking or letting your emotions get the best of you. Again, I know the pizza looks great on the website. Uh, and you really wanted to be the guy who found that hidden gem, but don't make an emotional decision based on that without uh, getting all the facts. And then number three is to remember there are two sides to every story. That's such a simple thing to say that if we're talking about myself, we overlook all the time that someone else has their interpretation of the events as well. And it's very unwise to, to respond based on the first thing that you've heard. All right, big question three. This is a self-check here. What possible motives are driving my decision? Proverbs 16.2 says, All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Or other translations say the Lord weighs the motives. And then we also have Proverbs 20, verse 9, that says, Who can say I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. 
Now, hopefully you realize that's a rhetorical question, but we'll just pretend that it wasn't a rhetorical question. Raise your hand if you can say that my heart is pure and I am clean from, from sin. Okay, right. Other than Jesus Christ, none of us can say that, right? The reality is that oftentimes when we're making a big decision or really any decision, we have mixed motives. There's a mixture of things informing why we do what we do. Some of those motives are good. Some of them are not as good. When we look at decisions other people have made, it may be the right decision for them based on their circumstances and their motives, but that might not be the same for me. It might not make sense for me. Uh, sometimes the desire to want to, to fit in with what other people are doing can cause us to make poor financial decisions. We spend money on something so that we have what they have, which made it an unwise decision for us, in which case for them it was a, a fine decision. Um, the desire to be special or to be significant can cause us to overwork like it, it, as in a career to be a workaholic and completely neglect my family because I want to have this status or in athletics it could be neglecting my friends neglecting church skipping all kinds of activities to become the best at this because I want the notoriety of being the best at this thing over here we have mixed motives for why we do what we do so some practical tips here would be first is just to acknowledge that we have blind spots about ourselves. We all have blind spots about ourselves. Luckily, I don't, but uh, I know everybody else does. Um, we're usually very skilled at identifying other people's blind spots and at identifying the motives that the other person obviously had when they make their decision without, ne without need for confirmation. We just know it. And we usually know that they're bad motives, that the other person is doing something because they're greedy, they're doing it because uh, they're lazy, whatever. We can, we can identify that pretty well. We often construct this view of ourselves versus others where we know, especially those kids we don't like as much, like 98% of the time they're doing something for bad reasons. Like they have impure motives. Luckily, we are not like that. We make righteous decisions. We always have a clean and clear conscience. Our only desire is to glorify God and we never get clouded by our sinful nature. Maybe 2% of the time we mess up, right? If we were being truly honest about ourselves and really took the time to assess our motives, we'd probably say that it's actually 2% of the time that we are making purely clean, good, no mixed emotion or no mixed motives decisions. No selfishness, no greed, nothing. And 98% of the time, there is some kind of mix there. There's a mix there where we, um, our sinful tendencies are creeping in. Whether or not we want to see it, that's probably the case. We're really good at identifying other people's motives. We're less good at identifying our own motives. So we have these blind spots. I'm telling you, we have these blind spots um, when we're making decisions. So be aware of it so that we can then take the time to, to account for that. So knowing that fact, number two is to honestly assess them. Honestly assess your motives, both good and bad. I'm not saying all your motives are bad, but know what they are. Um, just honestly take the time to reflect, to say, why do I want this so badly? Why am I leaning so hard towards option A and frankly not even considering option B and C? Again, it might be good. You might have been doing the right thing, but take the time to ask yourself the questions of why it is you're doing that. And then number three right behind it would be be willing to give other people permission to speak into your life about this. This is obviously hard, this, this will make you vulnerable and you're risking them not just telling you what you want to hear, right? That's hard. 
but try to be the kind of person that invites faithful brothers and sisters or, or godly mothers and fathers in the faith to help you and to speak freely to you, knowing that we're not always the best judge of our own character and our own motives. All right, cruising along, number four. How should past experiences inform my decision? How should past experiences inform my decision? Proverbs 26, 11. Love the imagery here. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Who in here, do we have any dog owners in here? Okay. Have you seen a dog do this? Like you watch from afar, you see that they've just hawked up something gross, and then they head back over and take a bit too keen of an interest in what just happened. And it's almost like slow motion as you see the mouth going back down. And from afar, you're trying to get the words, no, out, and they go in for it. It's traumatic, I'll tell you. But after you recover from that, you're thinking to yourself, what is this dumb dog doing? Why did he just return to the place he threw up and was pretty fascinated by what happened that he went in for it again, right? It's disgusting. Hey, stupid, why'd you do that, right? Well, somebody could probably say the same thing about me and about you sometimes. We sometimes are like the dog that um, we don't always learn from past mistakes, okay? Uh, We simply repeat the same thing over and over again. And other people on the outside probably want to shout at us, hey, stupid, you've done this before. It went really poorly. Get off the merry-go-round. You're hurting yourself, right? Well, Proverbs 17.10 says, A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Some people don't learn from their mistakes. And a hundred blows to them doesn't make any difference. They still never change. They repeat the same thing over and over again. Uh, they, They fail to recognize and make a change. But for a wise man, a man or a woman of understanding, which we're trying to become... When we get that rebuke or that correction from a brother or a sister in Christ, that should do the trick. That should do the trick. Now, most of us have room for improvement there, but that's what we want to be able to hear. We want to be able to hear the rebuke. Uh, If if you're the kind of person, for just making up some examples, that each friend group that you go into, you end up leaving because things have blown up, right? Every time time you join a friend group, things seem to, to go wrong. Or let's say whatever the last period of classes that you have at school, in that class, your grade is two grades below every other single one. You might want to start to look in the mirror in those situations and say, you know what? Maybe it's me. Like maybe I'm the variable here, or maybe I'm the constant here that is leading to these problems. Maybe it isn't that they always give me the worst teachers at the end of the day. Maybe it isn't that all these other friends are drama queens, and it just happens to be that when I join, things explode. Maybe it's actually me who keeps hitting his head on the same doorpost every day and keeps forgetting to duck. Maybe that's you. And maybe you're also blessed enough to have a friend, a good friend, a good Christian friend who will tell you, hey man, it's you. You're doing this. You need to make a change. My, my exhortation to you would be, accept the rebuke. Accept the correction. I, I have... I have one of my kids in here, so this makes it difficult to give a personal example. It's not Will in this example, okay? But we have a certain child who, when she's corrected, he or she, when he or she is corrected, he or she just keeps on giving us all the reasons why 
I don't see it right or why it was okay or giving all these excuses. And I've said to him or her a couple of times, just accept the correction. Just accept the correction. I'm on your side here. Just accept the correction. That's what we want to be able to do. It's humbling. It takes humility to be able to receive the correction, but that's what a man or woman of understanding does is that we receive that correction, assuming it to be true because it's coming from a good godly friend and then make the change uh, accordingly. So some, some pro tips there. First would be to look for patterns of behavior in your own life. So this would be being humble enough to think back. You don't have that long of a life yet, but look back over decisions that you've made to see where you might reflect and say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not the most proud of the way that I handled that or the decision I made in that case. I wish I hadn't have done it that way. And then see if you can detect a pattern for what may trigger you to be making these bad decisions. Maybe when I'm tired, I tend to X, Y, Z, or when I'm stressed, I always lash out at Joe Schmo over here. When my sibling does A, I always respond poorly with thing B. When I'm hungry, I get frustrated when all these things happen. See what patterns in your life lead you to making these um, unwise decisions, none of which are an excuse for the decision, but notice what drives you there so that you can respond better in the future. Uh, When I get frustrated with another certain child that isn't Will, I can often see myself, we're starting to snark back and forth, and I can see, oh, we're ramping up. This is going to be a good one. And in my head, I'm thinking, and I'm even better at arguing than she is, so this is going to go great. There's no way this could end poorly. I need to learn to say, whoa, I've done this one before. I've been on this ride. It did not go great. It ended even worse off. And if I keep hopping on this ride over and over again, eventually one of us is going to say something we can't take back, and it's going to damage our relationship for a long time. So when I start to feel that tension boiling, I need to be humble enough to to say to myself or have a spouse who uh, has said it once or twice before that you're not handling this well. You need to change something about your behavior here because we know how this turns out. Be able to receive that and be able to to move on with that um, correction. That's what we want to be able to do is first identify the trend and when we've identified it, if someone's told us or if we've noticed it, know how to adjust and and respond more faithfully. That was number one that you hopefully wrote down. Number two is um, think a little bit and understand how your family background might influence your thinking here. Again, this isn't an excuse for your behavior. Uh, You're still accountable for the decisions you make and the actions you do. If there's alcoholism in your family, you're still accountable to not be an alcoholic, right? But the idea here is to at least take time to reflect on it as this could be another of those blind spots that we talked about earlier. This, you just may assume these kinds of things without even thinking about it. But um, if you're in a home where your dad consistently loses his temper, if you're not careful when you're an adult and when you're evaluating how to respond in a certain situation, your default might to say, I do it how dad did it, and we get angry, right? This, that's, that's what we do. Well, that's not acceptable, right? You're still accountable for that. Or if you grow up in a home where, where dad is like just super passive and he just withdraws every time that there's conflict. Well, one day when, when you're married, you want to recognize that when dad did it that way, it didn't work, right? So when you get into a conflict and you're thinking, what should I do here? Don't default to what you necessarily saw growing up. If the example was bad, if the example was good, of course, keep those things. But understand what the familial pattern has been 
to know, am I absorbing uh, good patterns that I do want to emulate? Or are there things that I've been by default emulating that I should stray away from because they lead to trouble? And then number three is to like actually be willing to learn from your mistakes. Uh, the quote is that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome, right? We have to actually be willing to acknowledge and then learn from bad decisions that we have made. An example that I know none of you can relate to, not in a million years, but use your imagination, uh, right? But like this young man here, I wonder if you've ever put off a big project, a big research paper, a big science paper until the very last minute. It's something you've known about for weeks, but you wait until the night before to say, oh, mom, I have this big thing due tomorrow, right? And then you cram it. You end up being super stressed about it. You throw something together and likely the quality's not great, right? And now you're also probably in a little bit of trouble at home, okay? Big mistake, right? You did that once. It happens. Big mistake. But don't be the dog that returns to the vomit. When the next project comes around, don't do the same thing. You now have experiential evidence of how your poor decision of deciding to procrastinate, you know how that plays out. You know for certain now that waiting until the last minute doesn't actually work. It's not a good strategy. So for heaven's sakes, don't foolishly procrastinate again on the next one. Will, don't, Will, <laughs> Just kidding, Will's a great kid. Um, it's one of the other three. Um, I know none of you have done it. None of you have procrastinated. I've never procrastinated, heaven forbid. But um, when we do that, when we see that the path we just went on didn't work, say, but I bet it'll work next time, right? <laughs> How many of us try to do that? It won't work next time, right? But if we don't focus and if we don't repent of it, if we don't seek wise counsel, we often end up making the same mistakes over and over again. So let's, the word repent in the New Testament is a word that means change your mind. Let's change our mind about these things. Let's change our mind about procrastinating and turn away from that and turn towards planning ahead and being a diligent worker. So, um, let's see. Okay, that was the last one. No more Babylon B. Thanks for the day. So let's, let's wrap up for today with, with these four. Um, but since we're not going to meet next week, we have a week in between, I want to give you a little bit of a challenge to start putting some of these biblical principles for decision-making into practice. You've got two whole weeks to do it. Um, I haven't just been talking for my health. I actually do want you, uh, the reminders are good for me, but I do want you to absorb these and actually apply them. We're going to cover four more questions the next time around, but here are two practical things. I don't have a slide for it, but two practical things that you can do over the next two weeks. One would be to with one of your parents or with a trusted uh, small group leader or somebody, have a conversation with them about some big decisions that you have somewhere in the pipeline. Maybe it's in the next month, maybe it's in the next year, but start to honestly talk with them and ha ask them to help you biblically process how you should be addressing those types of questions. If it's what I should do after high school, if it's what I should do for a job, any pick one, but have an honest question and say, mom, dad, if I'm trying to figure out what I should do, what things from scripture should I use to help me make that decision? And hopefully they have an answer or hopefully they will say to you, that's a really good question. Let me study on it and get back to you. That's something that the, the older among us have had to learn. I've had to learn that you don't have to have an answer on the tip of your tongue every time. Um, but have that conversation. Um, 
And then another, especially related to our dog and his vomit. Hopefully that image is stuck in your head. But consider one area of your own life where you know that you tend to make poor decisions based on past mistakes. You've made this mistake before and then you've made it again, maybe even a third time. Think about that and then ask the Lord to help you demonstrate wisdom and restraint the next time that comes along. Lord, I know I have a tendency to do thing X when thing Y happens. Help me to know how to respond better next time. Show me these, these principles from Proverbs that we've been studying. Show me through your word how I can better handle this situation. Because, I mean, these are relatively simple, but actually living wisely starts with small steps. These are relatively small things we can do. But I'm hopeful and I'm confident that God will use what you guys have been learning over however long you've been going through Proverbs in the upcoming weeks. I'm confident that he will use that to help you grow in your Christ-likeness and will, you can start to bring glory to God through your decisions versus feeling silly uh, after making the same one over and over again. So that's, that's my goal for you heading into the, these next two weeks. Consider those two things and then the next time we meet, we will go over the, the next four questions. And by the end of it, again, I'm hoping you'll be proverbial pool sharks or at least know what pool is. I mean, that would even be somewhat of a win. Um, for any questions before we finish today. Okay, well, I'll pray for us and then we can dismiss for today. Well, Lord, I'm grateful for these students. I'm grateful for how you have placed them here in this church amongst your people. And Lord, I'm grateful for your word, for all that it has revealed to us. Most importantly, it has revealed to us um, our need for a savior and where we can find that salvation in Jesus Christ. But Lord, you're also gracious to reveal to us how you would have us live while we are here. We know we have an eternity ahead of us, a glorious, blessed hope to look forward to. But while we're here, uh, how should we live? So we thank you for giving us, especially the Proverbs, to give us these principles. I pray that they would uh, sink deep into our hearts, that we could be led by them, that we could be informed by them. And then when we have our next big should I question ahead of us, the first thing that pops to our, our mind would be, what does God's word have to say and how would it lead me? Thank you for that. We trust you to grow us in Christ-likeness throughout our lives. Uh, we know that we, we need you. We need your help for it. We thank you for the people you've placed in our lives to help us see the right path. Thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.